This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. There's not a lot making Americans hopeful these days. More than half of the country told pollsters last year that they were, quote, extremely worried about the direction of the country. One in four said that, quote, nothing made them hopeful. Their anxieties, politics, the pandemic, and inflation. This year, existing worries have likely been compounded by fears and anger over mass shootings, the war in Ukraine, more fallen Christian leaders and sex abuse scandal cover-ups by church leaders, a massive drought on the southwest side of the country, climate change in action, spiking fentanyl deaths, a surge in crime, an explosion in homelessness. This is Christianity Today's final Quick to Listen episode. We've launched a new news podcast called The Bulletin, and we'll chat with its host, Mike Cosper, in a little bit on the show. But before we head out, I wanted to ask a question that I feel increasingly inclined to ask and that I'm struggling with, which is why should we hope? We will be taking um, the time over the next hour to ask what it looks like to practice hope in the midst of despair. How do we move past Christian platitudes and flimsy one-liners to a robust faith that there's more to our present circumstances than what we might be seeing? Today is December 1st, 2022. You're listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And hello, everyone. I have not had the chance to speak to you in a very long time, and it is great to be in front of the microphone with all of you today. Some of you may be like, this is the moment where Morgan does a gut check. And it is actually not the moment where I'm going to do a gut check because in many ways, you're going to hear a lot of my candid feelings about where my own state of hope and hopelessness is at this moment. And we're going to be having this discussion with a previous guest. It is Carmen Joy Imes, who is with us today. She is Associate Professor of Old Testament at Biola University, and she has previously joined Quick to Listen to nerd out about the Bible in light of Trump getting COVID, and also discuss controversy over San Francisco School Board deciding to drop the names of a lot of well-known Americans from the names of their schools. You may be wondering, (laughs) how did we get an Old Testament professor to join us to talk about those topics, Carmen? (laughs) Do you want to say anything about how that happened? <laughs> uh, I will just say that I was a bit puzzled by the first request for an interview about um, President Trump getting COVID. And I wondered what I had could possibly offer to that conversation. But we had such a good conversation that I was happy to come back on the show again, <laughs> even though the second topic was also very controversial. So I just appreciate your nuance and the way that you kind of tackle things head on. Well, I'm really glad, Carmen, that you're going to be joining us today because one of the things I know that's always been true when you've come on the show, if you've spent a lot of time in the Bible, and I had mentioned earlier that I did not want us to just 
be in a Christian platitude and flimsy one-liner space. Mm -hmm. And I know that is the furthest thing that we will be offering to people in Mm -hmm. this particular moment. So glad you could be here today for us to have this conversation. Let's just start by actually having a kind of a frank conversation about what is going on right now. So Carmen, what Mm -hmm. has happened in the past year that is making your situation, and you can say that either as you know, someone who lives in the United States and works in the United States or you specifically, you know, as a college professor in SoCal, what is making your situation feel overwhelming right now? Hmm. I didn't have to think very long about this one. Um, There's a lot overwhelming right now. I think personally, since the start of the pandemic, our family has been through so much hard stuff, so many broken relationships. Hmm. And we're just still still dealing with the aftermath of all that. This uh, past week, we celebrated Thanksgiving for the first time since my parents' divorce after 46 years of marriage. Mm. And so we had our first sort of in-person two-step Thanksgiving, which I know a lot of people in the world are very used to. But I grew up in a stable Christian home in which my parents were married to each other. And so this is new territory for me personally. Lots of other hard things in our family that— that we've had to navigate over the past couple of years. But then just when I look more broadly, I just see like here in Los Angeles County that the inflation is rampant. Like it's Mm -hmm. kind of unbelievable how high the taxes are, how fast the prices are going up. And I'm seeing that stress and strain in those around me who are having trouble finding housing, having trouble paying for groceries, just struggling in lots of ways. I see record levels of anxiety in my students. My students are resilient. They're, they're, they tend to be cheerful, but I can see the strain of carrying all that they're having to carry. There just seems like there's even more family crises on so many different levels, health and relational and other emergencies. And so, yeah, I think this is a good time to talk about where can we find hope. Yes, it's it's very desperately needed. All mm-hmm. right, so let's let's go to the Bible then right now, Carmen. When you saw this particular discussion matter that we have today, was there any mm-hmm. biblical passage or character that you were like, "Wow, this is something that I think we need to pay attention to at this moment that will help us," you know, as we're struggling with despair and depression and hopelessness? Mm. Well, this might feel ironic, but the person who came to mind first was Job Mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament because he is in the darkest season of his life. He's gone through so much loss, and yet we don't see him silenced or despairing. If, If he was experiencing complete despair, then we wouldn't have anything from him in Scripture. What we do have is a very robust and angsty conversation with God and with his friends about how he got into this predicament. And what I think is so helpful about Job is that at the end of this lengthy conversation in which basically Job is yelling into what feels like a void and wondering whether God will answer, we have God actually affirming that his angsty prayers were good and that 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 Job has spoken rightly and 
one of the my recent sort of aha moments with Job is I was rereading Richard Middleton's book called Abraham's Silence. The subtitle of his book is The Binding of Isaac, The Suffering of Job, and How to Talk Back to God. And one of the insights that Middleton brings out in his book is that when God finally speaks at the end of the book, he spends a long time talking about these wild creatures, behemoth and leviathan. And many times people have come to this text and have read it as sort of putting Job in his place and saying, look, I've got really wild creatures that I'm in charge of. Who do you think you are to talk to me like this? But Middleton actually shows that these animals that God talks about, these wild and maybe even mythical creatures that God talks about are the most like Job in all of creation. Hmm. These sort of untamed creatures are being held up as an example of God's good creation uh, using similar terms to how God would describe Job in his being sort of untamed in his speech. And so Middleton argues that, that God is actually affirming Job and that he's inviting us to bring our prayers, our honest and unvarnished prayers of desperation to him. And so I think in a world where everywhere we look, there's things that are falling apart. I think what we most desperately need is permission to pray honestly, because I don't think that we're ever going to find hope by just trying to paste a smile on our faces and cheer, cheer things up a bit. I think when, we're going to only get there through brutal honesty and through naming what's wrong in the world, naming what's broken, and doing that in the presence of God. Because if we say it to God, that's not despair because it's, we, we speak in trust that there is a God who's listening and that He is both good enough to do something about this and powerful enough to do something about this. Otherwise, why would we bother praying? Hmm. Is there a particular prayer that Job prays that you would want to read a couple lines of? Mm. The, the chapter that comes to my mind is Job chapter 3, which is probably the darkest chapter in the Bible. And the reason that I bring it up is because I had an opportunity one time to interview a couple, uh, Kevin and Julia Garrett, who had been imprisoned in China and tortured over many months. And... I asked them, they were, after a while, they were able to each get a copy of the Bible brought to them. And so I, I thought, oh, wouldn't it be wonderful to find out what, what their most treasured Bible passage was in their <laughs> darkest days? And they, they said, Julia said it was Job chapter three. <laughs> and I was so surprised because, you know, we would expect maybe Psalm 23 or something kind of more cheerful. But Job chapter three is one in which Job opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. May the day of my birth perish and the night that said a boy is conceived. That day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. Again, the reason why I think they found hope in this chapter mm. and why I find hope in it is because it acknowledges that some seasons of life are so dark and feel so hopeless that we would rather, I mean, Job basically, he, he says he would rather he was never born mm -hmm. because life is so hard. And that rather than condemning or canceling out Job's voice, it gets preserved for us in sacred scripture. 
Mm-hmm. And somebody could say, well, this is just reporting what he said. It's not uh, It's not actually affirming it. But if we look in the psalm, Psalm 88 sounds very similar. It's, it's also a psalm that ends in darkness where the psalmist is just utterly despondent and yet prays. And both of these psalms, bo- both of these prayers, Job's prayer in chapter 3 and Psalm 88, remind me that it's okay to bring our darkness and struggle to God. We don't have to try to talk ourselves into putting a more positive spin on things. There are days to rejoice and days to celebrate, but we don't get there by pretending things aren't hard right now. So when you say the words positive spin, some people would look at the word hope and say that Mm. is a four-letter word for a positive spin on a horrible situation. (laughs) How are you defining hope? Yeah, I would say hope is the confident conviction that this is not how it will always be that this is not all there is. So hope, hope in and of itself, it is not, it's not varnishing today by saying, by trying to put a positive spin on today. It's saying there's more than today. There's tomorrow and the next day. And I actually trust that things will not always be this bad. And so it, hope, real hope allows us to be honest about the struggle but in that honesty to recognize that it's not the last word. So how does it look like then to practice hope? What does that actually mean? Or is it just kind of like a mental exercise or an emotional exercise that we're doing? Um, Some of it is an emotional exercise. I think practically one thing that's been helpful to me lately is looking back and remembering like when you, when that sort of sick feeling comes over you that that knot in your stomach or the can't sleep because your mind is going round and round and round over some problem that you can't unravel is to think about when have i felt this before and that's where i've been just even over the past week feeling this sick feeling in the pit of my stomach mm. when have i felt this way before mm. and as i ask that question actually hope flooded in because I can remember other seasons of life that felt hopeless, that I thought I was coming to the end of something that I treasured, the end of life as I knew it. And when I look back now, I can see how God redeemed those really, really difficult circumstances and how I'm in a much better place now in in some areas of my life. So the things that I thought were dying didn't die. Uh, God brought new hope and new life into those areas of my life. So so to me, just stopping to say, when have I felt this way before? And looking back can then remind you of God's faithfulness. And then I think practically being with other people and being real, like cultivating a community where we can be real with other people is also essential because on my darkest day, I might need somebody else to carry the light for me. And we usually are not all in the same dark place at the same time, the same sense of hopelessness. Like we have, I guess our hope ebbs and flows. And so when we're together, we can sort of borrow hope from other people. They might be able to cling to the truth that God is making all things new, even when we have forgotten that temporarily. What does it look like to practice hope as a community? And 
I'm thinking of this specifically in terms of like, if you were going to kind of, I feel like there's books that are written about small towns, right? (laughs) And they'll be like, Mm -hmm. convey it as like a hopeless community, right? But what would it look Mm -hmm. like for us to characterize a church or a group of Christians or a family, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. any type of thing where we're amidst a group of people and for us to be described as hopeful? I think one sign of a hopeful community is when we're not turned in on ourselves, but we're we're reaching out to each other and even beyond our community. It seems to me like the ultimate hopelessness is when you're completely self-absorbed and don't have mm-hmm. any energy to reach out. And mm-hmm. so if we cultivate communities where we're actually not just thinking of ourselves, but we're anticipating the needs of those around us, I think that is so encouraging. I I had a really tough week at a conference a couple of weeks ago, and I in the moments where I was despairing, other people were sending me notes saying, Carmen, thank you for all you've done. Thank you for all your work. It's mm. made such a difference. And it, it, I was in a space where I did I wasn't sure anymore if I had made any difference or if there was any hope mm. in that particular space. Mm-hmm. And and other people were able to see my discouragement and reach out and encourage me. And they could have just wallowed in their own discouragement, but they didn't. And that mm-hmm. was really that was really um, empowering to me. It at least gave me the strength to kind of keep going on. So so that reaching out to others, I think, cultivates hope because, again, we can't, when you're out of your own strength and you're not sure how to do the next thing, recognizing it isn't all about me, we're in this together, can mm-hmm. really lift that sense of heaviness. So we've kind of moved between both big external events that are happening in the world and ones that are immediately affecting us and our situations. If we pivot again to talking about the stuff that's quote unquote out there, the things Mm -hmm. in the news, so to speak, are there particular ways that that type of catastrophe or disaster or horror ends up affecting us and hitting us differently than the stuff that we are experiencing with on a very intimate and personal level? Yeah, I think, I think the news definitely hits us and it hits us differently in different seasons, depending on how big our own emotional reserves are when, when we see a headline, depending on how close it is to home, either demographically or geographically, I can remember being in college. I think I was in my senior year of college in Oregon when the shooting happened at Columbine High School in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And I'm from Denver. And Columbine was just a few miles from my neighborhood growing up. So even though I didn't attend that school and I didn't know anyone who was killed, I carried that trauma. Like I was glued to the news. I was you know, my parents were sending me newspaper clippings and we were talking on the phone and processing it all because it felt close to home, even though I was far away when it happened. So I think depending on our own individual experiences and our network, we can be more or less affected by events. And I think that it's good for us to pay attention to whether we have the emotional bandwidth to enter into every news story. There may be a time when you just don't have this, like, it to, to totally get absorbed in the news would actually 
make it impossible for you to love the people around you well and to take care of yourself well. And so I think we can go in and out of seasons of being more engaged with the news and less engaged. I think ultimately we're called to be faithful to what what God is calling us to do in a given day. There's not like a one size fits all for how how much you should be following the news. I think it depends. Yeah, I feel like that one's an extremely hard one because yeah. you know, first of all, it takes first of all, it, it definitely begs the question what is the news, right? I, mm-hmm, I hear a lot mm-hmm. of people who get news from their social media platforms and if that's true for you, then most likely you are consuming personal updates and global headlines mm-hmm. in the same minute or even second, right? Definitely yep. on the same screen. And so yep. where exactly something becomes news or not is not immediately clear. Not to mention that the person who is delivering that news could be someone you've never met, someone that you have a connection with online mm-hmm. and does not necessarily mean in your factor into your real life, quote unquote, but still plays an yeah. important role in the life that you have on the internet. Um, it could be someone that you don't talk to on a regular basis, but have known, you know what I'm saying? Like there's just all mm-hmm. these different ways mm-hmm. that who, depending on who the messenger is, there's a different level totally. of connection. Right. And then of course, totally. there'll be times where someone you have a decently deep connection with share something from a different part of the world that's hitting them very closely. Right. And yep. so yep. it's hard to just say keeping up with current events is exhausting and fatigues my mental health and I can't pay yeah. any attention to that at all. Yeah. And I think that most people who listen to the podcast are <laughs> people who like following the news. So mm-hmm. that becomes mm-hmm. relatively challenging. And conversely, yeah. I do notice that in general, people who tend to be following every single thing that happens does not seem to have allowed them to be more present, you know, allow mm-hmm. them to be happier. Mm-hmm. Um, I know for myself, you know, we saw two high profile mass shootings happened in the last 10 days. And yeah. that really weighed extremely heavily on me. And yeah, I still feel very upset about that in many ways. And I don't mm-hmm. know anyone that died in these mass shootings, aside from the fact that they happened in a country that I live in. And I know some people in Colorado Springs. Um, yeah. Anyway, you just, you look at that and you're like, what are my options? You know, I, mm-hmm. this really is sucks and it's painful for me to have to, sit here and read these headlines and feel once again, because of course, as you know, another thing that happens in these situations is that we don't just experience them as isolated events, right? We experience right. the full weight of the fact that they have not stopped and yep. been resolved and gotten better. Yep. And every, right. You start to spiral. <laughs> right. So yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I just say that to say like the, the news consumption and so forth to me seems particularly vexing. And I, I do wonder if there's anything, if we can go back to scripture here to talk about our news consumption, because I do find that to be someplace where I I am just at a loss. Um, And Mm. it's one significant way that our world has fundamentally changed, even in the past 10 years, right? The fact that we can lie in bed, Mm -hmm. barely awake, and be reading traumatizing headlines and watching difficult to watch videos (laughs) from anywhere in the world. This is such a different world than when I was a child. And I think that as we're increasingly globally interconnected, it's also harder to separate yourself from the news. I remember in 2020, um, even before the pandemic hit, there the there was a volcano in the Philippines that erupted and we used to live in the Philippines so we were watching that just you know 
we were riveted to the news because we had been on, on that volcano mm-hmm. <laughs> and we had friends who were having ash fall in their yard. So we were watching that kind of with deep concern and then wildfires in Australia. And I was thinking about my friends in Australia and then the pandemic hit and then there were wildfires in Oregon like that came within miles of the home that we had once lived in. And so it just felt like one thing after another was so difficult to process. And it, it it would be one thing if it was just a headline of something far away, but things don't feel far away anymore because we know people all over the place. And so right. that's a challenge. And I think although we, we have, we go through seasons maybe of needing to pull back from the news just for our own sanity, just like focusing on our own daily mm-hmm routines. I think there's something to be said for being aware of news headlines that affect the people in our lives that we know and love, Mm -hmm. recognizing the global interconnectedness. And this is something I'd like to get better at because I have students here at Biola University who are from all all around the world and all over the United States. And so when there's a major crisis like flooding or fires or political Mm -hmm. unrest, it's a good idea for me to be aware of that and to make the connection like, oh, there are students in my class today, even though we're fine here in sunny Southern California, there are students whose families might be in danger of flooding or something. And to and to be able to acknowledge that and re- just reach out to them with co- some kind of comfort, I think that comes back to this idea of practicing hope as a community. If I'm only wrapped up in my own little world and everything in my world, then I don't have the capacity to acknowledge and recognize when those around me are struggling. So that's something for us to think about. So we've been in situations before where someone is feeling very overwhelmed or in the midst of despair about a particular thing that's going on. I can definitely think of a lot of my relatives, for instance, who have felt a mm-hmm. lot of this when it comes to the elections in the past mm-hmm. couple of years. Yeah. And it, there tends to be maybe this very strong sense of fatalism and also mm-hmm. the sense that, at least in these situations, America is on the brink, right? There's, mm-hmm. and, and, and you can tell that people are, are quite shaken about this reality. So, you know, they come to me, how, how are we to respond really well as Christians, right? You know, I think obviously that part of supporting this person and being there for this person is listening well, it's empathizing, mm-hmm. but, and, and it's hard because I'm, I'm giving examples of people who maybe are Christians and maybe are not, right? Um, I, I just don't know where you might see it as our place to try to practice hope or being hopeful mm-hmm. in a situa- situation um, without, mm-hmm. you know, again, going back to these like trite Christian platitudes, right? I mean, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Walk me yeah. I think, I think Morgan, for me, what has been helpful is to recognize that God invites our honest lament And when I recognize that, then it relieves me of the pressure of trying to fix somebody's difficulties by like getting them to the place where they can put a positive spin on it, but actually can just provide space instead for them to be honest with God about the struggle. And so when somebody comes to me who's really struggling, if I can be a non-judgmental and non-anxious presence with them 
and just give them the space they need to be honest. Like the practice of being honest with me can then help them take on the posture of being honest with God. And if I can remind them in that conversation that God wants to hear this too, and that they can say what they've just said to me, to God, that's been that's been really liberating for for mm-hmm. some of my students who've come to me, you know, really angry or really despairing or really struggling. Mm-hmm. I think there's a place to remind people of the truth, but I don't need it to be my goal for them to be smiling as they walk out the door of my office. I'm, I'm even thinking of somebody who came to me recently with a crisis in which her grandmother was dying. Mm. And she was really wrestling with how could God allow this to happen. But as she talked about how much she loved her grandmother and how much her grandmother loved her family and poured into her family and how she was the rock of the whole family, I just I just felt such joy for her. Like, wow, how cool that you have a family that's all gathering around your grandmother and that you have such a rich legacy to remember together. Like, Nobody can live, nobody lives forever, right? Mm -hmm. Like we'll, at some point we all die and then we'll have resurrection to look forward to. But like God doesn't keep all the people alive all the time. People have been Mm -hmm. dying since the beginning of time. And so this might be your grandma's time to die, but what a gift that you've had such a beautiful relationship with her that you have all of these happy memories to cherish together. And that doesn't erase how hard it is. But I think she was feeling like it was a personal affront, like God was being somehow cruel mm-hmm. by taking away her grandmother. And I just saw such a gift of like these last months with her grandmother uh, filled with happy family memory memories. And, and even that ache of grief is like a sweet grief because it's, remembering someone you loved and who loved you well, rather than the more complicated kinds of grief when we lose someone with whom we were estranged or they were abusive or something. And so then it's really more complicated. So in that case, I I was able to express to her what a gift Mm -hmm. her grandmother's long dying was, um, that they would be able to have this family time together. And I think that helped her to turn it around and see it from a different angle. So as you mentioned several times already, you're in this position where you are having a lot of interactions with Gen Z, with the youngest generation. Mm -hmm. And one of the characteristics that I think many of us who are not part of this generation tend to think of when we think of this generation is one that is really struggling with a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. and I think that there's been strong feelings about that from millennials and also boomers and Gen Xers Mm -hmm. about Mm -hmm. whether we need to tough love it out of these young people. If tough love is the solution to help people overcome this. One of the things that I've seen a lot of and would probably resonate in your university experience is basically professors potentially feeling pressure to give mental health days, um, or Mm -hmm. otherwise accommodate some of the mental health challenges that their Gen Z students say that they're struggling with. So I'm wondering if you can give us some who are, some of us who are not part of Gen Z advice for supporting in, in the most comprehensive sense of that word, supporting this Mm -hmm. uh, generation and what you've learned kind of working with them over the years. 
Oh, I am figuring it out as I go along. I'm definitely <laughs> seeing spike in anxiety. Um, I try to be a compassionate again, non-anxious presence for my students. One of the ways that I do that is by showing up to class really early, like 30 minutes before class starts. I get there and start getting all set up, especially for my larger classes, so that as they're coming in the room, I can be more present for them and not like flustered Mm -hmm. getting all my things plugged in and all the things started and getting my stuff organized. So just in being able to invite them into a space where there's calm instead of Mm -hmm. frenzy, that's one thing I do. I also play music as they're walking into the classroom mm. and students love it. I, I choose music that goes with the theme of the day. And, <laughs> um, and, and, and some of them come in and they're trying to figure out which movie score is this and how does it relate to the book of Esther or the book of Psalms or whatever uh, book we're on. So that's been, I think, one small thing to do. It is tricky to try to discern and sort through all of the myriad of excuses or excuses is not the right word. All of the, the emails that I get from students saying for, for this, this, or this reason, I didn't get the quiz done in time, or I didn't get the reading done in time. Can I still do it? I find that part of my job to be quite exhausting. This kind of constant discernment of, is that, is that a valid excuse Mm -hmm. or not? Mm -hmm. And so one thing that I'm trying to do is shift the way my classes are set up so that I have fewer decisions like that to make. Mm. So students who are loving their family, their extended family well, and that's why they missed something because they they were driving their mom to her surgery or they were sitting beside their grandmother as she was dying or whatever, like just recognizing like they made a good choice to be there for their family. What's it going to cost me personally to open that quiz? Five minutes? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, And so erring on the side of generosity with things like that. Yeah, definitely the decision fatigue that you're mentioning feels like it's one of the things that (laughs) challenges all of us on this end, you know? And yet, yeah, trying trying to figure out how to best be there and support people who are going through myriad things that, you know, may not feel as quote unquote real to us, but are quite real to the people there seems like another thing we have to learn how to navigate well. Yeah. And I, and I don't, I think time will tell how much the pandemic has shifted and shaped the way the next generation engages with life and what sorts of accommodations that we've made for the pandemic are going to, are here to stay and which in, in, in which areas will be sort of bounced back to how things used to be. And I, I'm not sure about that yet. One of my friends told me recently, we make policies so that we don't have to make decisions. So I'm in a zone where I'm trying to figure out how can I create policies that will, that will take the weight of decision-making off of me, but the policies themselves are trauma-informed, like consistent with what the learning center on campus would want for our students because the more I can shape the course from the beginning to sort of recognize that life happens, the fewer exceptions I'll have to make in the end. So to kind of take that principle of policies, when I think of policies in the church, I often think of spiritual disciplines or practices that mm-hmm. we practice and continue to practice even when 
our external circumstances may feel like they're at odds with that particular practice. And mm-hmm. so I think that you've mentioned here prayer and how prayer may look different in a particular season where we're feeling overwhelmed by despair mm-hmm. or we're feeling hopelessness, but this sense of we're going to continue to pray. And for people who are in a liturgical church setting, right, they may be very consistent readings that they're doing that exist outside of whatever else is happening in the world. Are there any other rhythms, hope rhythms that you might suggest that we adopt um, as part of our Christian faith? You know, you mentioned liturgical churches um, kind of incorporating intentional prayer. I think I think that something every Christian can do is to incorporate praying the Psalms into mm. their daily rhythm. The Psalms give us the whole range of human emotions and responses to what's going on in the world. And in some of my most despairing moments, I have found such solace in the Psalms because I recognized and discovered there that I was not the only one who felt this strongly about hard things. I was not the only one who's been through this before. And so I think just praying the Psalms can not only give us words to express the whole range of things we're experiencing, but they also help create the bandwidth for receiving other people's experiences. So maybe you maybe you don't feel like you have an enemy that you need to pray imprecatory psalms about, but there are people in your life who do. And by by familiarizing ourselves with the whole range of ways of praying honestly, what I hope is that we expand the possibilities of what we can receive from other mm-hmm. people and and reduce our need to fix or change them, but just can allow them to express themselves honestly because we recognize that's allowed. God invites this. We don't have to try to talk them out of how they're feeling. I'll add one thing, which is that I think singing is also very important as well. Oh, yeah. And yeah. can take the words that we might have and elevate them with regards to the majesty we may want to communicate at the moment or the misery and Mm -hmm. just give us a depth of feeling that sometimes our words are not able to communicate. So yeah, yeah. I find those song. Yeah. Songs can be extremely powerful in that sense. And, and the thing about singing together is that we are, all our voices are, are like raised together. It gives us a sense of solidarity and this sense, like I'm not alone. These are things we believe and we're leaning into as a community. All right. So Carmen, to wrap, I actually just want to go back to a question that I asked in the introduction, which is why should we hope? And so Mm -hmm. I'm, I know that that is not something we're going to be able to, you know, you're not gonna be able to recite your whole book from memory Mm -hmm. to discuss this, but Given everything that we're suffering with and aware of right now, why should we as Christians in this context hope? Hmm. I think we should hope because our faith is rooted not in our emotional life or in our optimism, but it's rooted in the character of God, of a God who has created this world good and who has promised to renew all things and restore all things. And so on any given day, life may look bleak, but if we believe what we say the scriptures teach, if that is that the scriptures teach that God is 
determined to renew all things, that Christ's resurrection from the dead is the first fruits of all of our resurrections from the dead, um, that this is not all there is, that there's the best is yet to come. It takes the pressure off of me trying to drum up optimism or me trying to feel a certain way today because our hope does not depend on how optimistic we feel. Mm. Our hope is grounded in someone and something other than ourselves and someone and something other than the circumstances that surround us. So that's what keeps me going. And and as I read the scriptures, they remind me that God's been faithful to previous generations and that he's promised to make all things new. And so that's where I'm staking my claim. Well, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts about hope with us and for yeah, rooting them back into scripture. Mm-hmm. Really. This episode is brought to you by Preaching Today. Are you tired of chasing down quality sermon illustrations? Need fresh ideas for helping your message connect? Each week, Preaching Today adds fresh content to our database of over 14,000 editor-screened illustrations. Quickly find the right story that will bring your message to life and help your people move closer to God. Get started today at preachingtoday.com. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Okay. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, It's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come come here? Why? I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes, so if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Appreciate it. Hey, everyone. We are now going to transition to my conversation with Mike Cosper. So obviously a lot of you have had questions about what will be happening to Quick to Listen. I have received your emails and tweets and messages over the course of this year. And I thought it would be best for us to bring in Mike. I think most of you guys know him from his extremely hit series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. However, He is working on a bunch of other projects, and some of them are extremely germane to listeners of Quick to Listen. So I wanted to talk to Mike a little bit as a journalist, because we both have that in common, and then we will try and sneak in a couple Mars Hill questions for those of you who are fans of that show as well. And I think this will be a great conversation. Hey, Mike. Hey, Morgan. Good to see you. (laughs) It is great to be here with you right now. All right. So, Mike, I talked about us being Christian journalists just 
a couple seconds ago. Tell me a little bit about how you consume the news, where you get your news from, what kind of your news appetite looks like. Yeah, I'm I'm a little bit of a sporadic news consumer. Like I I mean it's kind of constant, but it's also fairly disorganized. So there there are definitely, you know, a couple of sort of classic newspaper types that I I hit on a regular basis. One of the things I actually find really useful is Apple News as just an mm-hmm. you know, an amalgamator of lots of different stuff and it it introduces me to different people. And I'm also somebody I'm I'm a Twitter junkie like a lot of journalists mm-hmm. and and that's that always seems to be a place that's leading you into interesting stories and angles and perspectives you wouldn't you wouldn't hear otherwise. Now obviously that all might change any mm-hmm. any moment now. For me, because of the way the nature of kind of my weird attention span and everything else mm-hmm. is, my tendency is I'm I'm listening to pod, news podcasts all the time and then reading in like long stretches two or three times a week. Some of that's even like my eyes. Like I'm a, I'm a slow reader. I have bad eyes. You know what I mean? Like it's, mm-hmm. so that's just how it works for me. I grew up in a family that was like an NPR was on in the car all the time. Cable news was on all the time at home. So it was just kind of the way, it was definitely the environment that I grew up in. Is there any publication out there right now? You can also name a podcast if that fits instead that you feel is needs more attention or more love because of some of the really outstanding outstanding journalism that they do? So I'm somebody who reads widely, you know, and, and I'm, I'm interested in people from all ends of the ideological spectrum. And I've found looking for conservative voices to just understand, like, what's coming from that community, what are people writing, especially in the kind of opinion journalism space. I actually really love Commentary Magazine. Mm. It's a sort of unique community of writers. It's mostly Jewish writers. Because of that, they have a, a, a very fine-tuned sense of what's going on in the world with anti-Semitism. Uh, they have a different perspective oftentimes, that editorially a different perspective on sort of international international news, conflict, that kind of thing. Yeah, like I said, it's it's a very conservative bunch of writers. So it's it can be very red meat <laughs> at times. But mm-hmm. I find it's a I find it's a different kind of spin. It's definitely a publication that has not gone deep down the nationalist sort of rabbit hole. And I think it's that's very much reflective of the Jewish identity of their writers. John Podhoretz is the the editor and and he's often saying, you know, Jews are the canary in the coal mine of a culture. And their concerns about nationalism, white supremacy, um, all of that, they've, those are alarms they've been sounding for, you know, much earlier than a lot of the other press was, um, mm-hmm. even as a, as a conservative publication, which I find very interesting. That is such a great recommendation, especially since, you know, we're talking to our listeners right now from a niche Christian media mm-hmm. outlet as well. So I think it is, can be very interesting to find what those niche media outlets are for other faiths and kind of compare and contrast where we share common cause with them per your points right there, what blind spots they can point out for us and just understanding more about how people's theology influences how they view what's going on in the world. So I'm glad that you suggested them. That's great. So Mike, I'm also curious if you can say a little bit about how long you've identified as being a journalist and what being a journalist means to you. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it was funny. I came to CT and it was probably a while after I came to CT before Mm -hmm. I even was able to kind of say to myself, oh, I think I'm a professional journalist now, you know? So I was a pastor for 15 years. And then 
in the five-year window between coming to CT and leaving full-time ministry, I spent most of that time doing like documentary-style narrative podcasting. It was podcasting for hire. It was working with different organizations, doing documentary work for them, and doing some of my own sort of journalistic storytelling stuff as well. But I, I wouldn't have thought of myself as a journalist in that sense. I think, you know, it was, it was, I was probably referred to as a journalist before I referred to myself as one. And mm -hmm. at, at times I still feel like, man, I, I, I revere the term so much. I admire the people mm -hmm. who've devoted their, you know, their whole careers to it so greatly that I'm even hesitant at times to say, oh, I, yeah, I'm, I'm a journalist. You know, it comes out slowly mm -hmm. for me at times. It's interesting to hear you talk about having some of that inner tension, right? Because I think that for those of us who did listen to the rise and fall of Mars Hill, we're quite aware of how exhaustively you spent not only interviewing people, but tracking them down and trying to make sure that you could, you know, use your art of persuasion to convince them to join the show and to, to lend their voice to what was going on, right? Which is pretty much what journalism constitutes a lot of is trying to get folks who have meaningful contributions to contribute on the record and to, to bring and share their perspective. I'm wondering then if you can share, if you were not identifying as a journalist when you started making the podcast, how did you identify? And did any of that, did any of how you identified then shift as you continued working on the show, specifically working? I know reception is one thing, but specifically you doing that work. Yeah. I mean, to me, I came into it thinking, in terms of like documentary storytelling. Like I want to tell this story. And like you said, like when you just sort of write out the definition of like what is a journalist, what are they trying to do on a piece of paper, a lot of this this lines up. But but that's how I thought of myself. I thought of myself as a documentary storyteller. I do think of myself as a, a person with a strong point of view. I mean, I, I think to me going into that story in particular, it's it <sighs> I feel like there, I would be fundamentally dishonest if I didn't have a label attached to it that was something like from Christianity Today. I think a big part of the challenge with a story like that is there's a very, and, and this is a big challenge of talking about the North American church in general, there's a lens through which you can tell those stories and read those stories that's very sort of pure, sort of capitalist, institutionalist or whatever, where a lot of the stuff that looks unethical in the framework of a Christian community hmm. looks more like just the way of doing business in mm -hmm. inside of a lot of organizations. And I think, unfortunately, that's, you know, the reason those lines have been blurred inside the church is part of the story we were telling. I mean, it goes back to, mm -hmm. you know, the megachurch movement that launches out of the 1970s and 80s. I definitely came into it feeling like, I want to tell the story, I want to tell the truth about it. But I also felt like my perspective on the world as a believer was a really critical ingredient of telling that story, honestly. I, th I think you had to tell it from a place of, act, you know, acknowledging like I'm a fellow traveler here. And when I think about holding the story up to the truth, it's, it's not just sort of objective fact. It's like the truth of scripture, the truth of the gospel and, and, and the church as it's described and, and depicted in the scriptures. So, we're having you on this finale episode of Quick to Listen because you are also launching a news project that we think will be relevant to listeners of this show. And I would argue 
is kind of doing journalism from a completely different route than how you did it with Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Can you share with our listeners about your vision for the show, what they can expect and what your role will be on that? Yeah, so our, our the show's called The Bulletin. Our tagline for it is that it's a show about the events, um, issues, and people that are shaping our world, um, particularly shaping the world of Christian of Christian listeners. Our goal is to kind of look week to week and say, okay, what are the three or four things that are on people's minds that they're asking questions about where we can either do a deep dive somewhere or we can sort of create a pathway. We can have a conversation that that helps people have some handholds where they can then read further. We can point to other resources, whatever the case may be. So yeah, I mean, the format for the show is, as we're launching it, the format's going to be roundtable discussions. I'll be hosting and kind of moderating discussion. Um, mm-hmm. Russell Moore is going to be on the show, you know, a regular contributor to the show. We have several other CT editors that we're looking to start incorporating into the show um, as we as we go along. And then we'll have a number of guests. Our first episode, we had Justin Gibney and, and Michael Ware on to talk about the, uh, the, the outcome show. of the yeah. midterms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so... That's the kind of thing we want to do week to week is like, what's what's top of mind? And then part of what we want to do with that roundtable is, can we provide a breadth of perspective on, you know, faithful presence, faithful witnesses who might be coming from a lot of different places in in talking about how we how we address those issues? And I'm really hopeful we can get to a place like one of my dreams for the show is that we have some weeks with like some sharp disagreement, you know, like I want to mm-hmm. see, uh, the fact is that the, the church isn't fully aligned on, on everything. And I think Christians need to learn to think and, and think through these issues and something CT has always been devoted to. I mean, I remember the first time I ever wrote uh, a pitch to Ted, actually, Ted wrote back and said, along with the rest of the rejection, <laughs> he wrote, uh, you know, part of our commitment is that we don't tell people what to think. Um, we want to invite them into their own their own kind of thinking. And I, I think we really want to try to do that with the bulletin as well. We want to maintain that perspective of thoughtful engagement and, and encouragement to think. So it's started last week from when you and I are talking, and it'll be releasing every Friday from here to forth. Awesome. All right. Well, folks that are interested in listening to the bulletin, I suggest that you search it. It will be on its own feed And you can find it there, as Mike said, when it drops every Friday. Mike, I think you wanted to pivot at this point in the conversation. So I will throw it over to you. I do. I want to ask you a couple of questions. Um, Let's do it. First of all, I I want to tell listeners that Morgan was my first CT friend. I've told her this before. (laughs) But my first trip to Carroll Stream, like three days before the, the COVID shutdown, I got up there. I really didn't know anybody. And I, go, I show up at the front desk, which I've come to find out since, like, nobody comes to the front door at that office. <laughs> nobody. But I came to that front door, and, there, you know, there was a woman at the reception who was like, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what you're here for. And you just happened to be walking by. One of the things I remember is I, I you were wearing I, – I was in a band years ago with someone – who would wear these big furry boots and refer to them as Wookiee boots, right? Because they looked like Chewbacca's legs. You had Wookiee boots on. <laughs> and uh, you showed me around and we and we did that within a few weeks. We did a project called Prayer Amid Pandemic that I'm still really proud of. You did amazing work on that. And you've done amazing work here. And um, I just want to say I'm grateful for you and, and for these contributions. I, I wanted to ask you, 
as you look back, I'm wondering if like, do you have a favorite moment on this show, a favorite conversation, something that, that maybe just particularly moved you or was particularly illuminating for you? Well, let me look back into the 300 episodes that we recorded <laughs> or something like that and figure out a particular time. So one of the episodes that stuck with me was something that we recorded last September when the United States was withdrawing from Afghanistan. And I was really fortunate to come across in our current coworker, Mindy Bells, who now is doing some work at CT, but she had spoken to a pastor who was based in the States, but was Afghan. And I was able to connect with him and bring him onto the show. And you and I, I think both really love audio because there's a certain level of intimacy that is conveyed when you're able to hear someone's voice. And I think there was a lot of pain that he felt in that moment that I felt very grateful that we were able to share with our listeners. I thought it was very special that someone could hear from someone who had real friendships and family members whose lives were at stake at that time. You know, so much of us, we process our foreign policy through some sort of medium that can make it feel a little bit less of our responsibility. I, I definitely know that's true for anything that's been about whether it's the war in Iraq or war in Afghanistan or wars that are happening in other countries. You know, we think about Ukraine right now. And personally, I think that when you read articles about it, or even to some extent watching footage of the war, it can still make it feel like it's over there or happening to other people. But when mm. you are actually hearing someone's voice to whom that is not just some sort of political science debate that's going on or foreign policy discussion, but is feeling what might happen to their loved ones is on WhatsApp, most likely as the conversation is unfolding, trying to get people out or trying to use their connections. I think that hits different. So mm -hmm. I'm really proud of the fact that we were able to feature the number of Christians around the world that we were able to. I, that's something that, again, I think that that can always feel like it's very mediated. There's a lot of different organizations that represent persecuted Christians around the world that do good work and do their best, obviously, to communicate those types of stories. But sometimes they can still be done in a way that um, allows us to feel like it's sanitized through no fault of their own. It's mostly through the medium that it comes across or it feels overly sensationalistic. So hmm. yeah, when I think about just some of the challenges that we had with time and booking people and locating guests, there are times where I feel like we really stuck the landing on, you know, the intersection of the show with particular voices that were important to hear at that moment. And, and that was definitely hmm. one of them. I remember that episode. Yeah, that was, and you're right. Like I, I think there's, there is something about the human voice. There's an intimacy to it. You know, Ira Glass always says, like, audio storytelling is a vehicle for empathy in a way that, that print isn't, especially with podcasting, too, because it's, you're just, you know, most people are listening on earbuds. You're just beaming somebody mm -hmm. straight into your head. Like, when else do you, <laughs> when else do you do that? So, well, Morgan, thank you for the work you've done on the show, and thank you for being my, my first CT friend and, and a long-term friend. And, we have, you know, we have some fun things planned in the future. You and I have talked a tiny bit about some some dreams and schemes. I hope we get to pull off together in the near future. But thank you for thank you for having me on, and and thank you for your your work here. So as a reminder to people who are listening to the show that want to check out Mike's new show, it is called The Bulletin, and it will be coming out on Fridays. 
All right. Now is the time of the show when we do something that maybe some people would see as hopeful or silly or playful at the very least. We're going to have precious moments, which is when Carmen and I will share something that has recently brought us joy. Carmen, are you ready to go? Sure. Yeah, it's been a it's been a very stretching couple of weeks for me, but in the midst of that, we celebrated Thanksgiving with my brother and his family, and I got to sit on the couch with my youngest niece while she read me a book that I got her for <laughs> Christmas. We opened Christmas presents together early since we're not going to be together for Christmas. And I just love emerging readers. <laughs> it is so fun to see the magic happen when they sound out words and they figure out how a story can come leaping off the pages. And my own youngest is 14 years old, so it's been a very long time since I've had an emerging reader in my home. So it was just really special to have Natalie there reading to me. She read me the Dr. Seuss book, I Wish That I'd Had Duck Feet. <laughs> it's just a fun, it's a really fun uh, story about like wanting to be something different and then realizing at the end of the day, it's good that I'm me and I'm the way God made me. So anyway, it was just really sweet to have her read to me and to have some, some time together in the midst of a stressful holiday season. Yeah, it sounds like you follow the philosophy of my mom, which is she always liked to buy people books, which I think are Oh, yeah, pretty much guaranteed. (laughs) (laughs) Books are my love language. (laughs) Yes, it's awesome to get them. I don't know if you do the thing where you write in the cover of them too, but that was always precious to me to go back and read the notes that people had shared there. All right, Carmen, where can people find your work? Tell me about your book situation. Share all of that with our listeners. Sure. So I'm on Facebook and Twitter. I'm still on Twitter. It hasn't collapsed yet. We'll see how that (laughs) goes. Everybody seems kind of worried about it. Um, I also have a blog, uh, carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. I'm on YouTube. I have a weekly video that I release on Tuesdays called Torah Tuesday, where I dig into right now just a few verses a week from the book of Exodus my my latest book is coming out in a few months, and it's called Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters. So some of what we talked about today is something that I've been really digging into myself and, and meditating on, like, why does it matter that God made the world and that it's good? And what does it mean to be human in God's good world? And what did, what happened when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's command? Like, what did that actually do to human identity? What did it do to the world? And how is God making all things new? So I've been thinking a lot about this sort of topic, and I hope that the book is helpful to the church in wrestling with human identity and vocation. Thank you, Carmen. And I'm impressed that you have upped your multimedia presence since we have last talked. That's really great. <laughs> cool. Awesome. All right. For myself, I think I was trying to go through what my precious moments were going to be. I think it will probably be an event that I'm hosting tonight. I know it's kind of funny to do preemptive ones, but essentially Mm -hmm. I attend a house church and our house church has gone through a number of seasons, most of which I have missed since I only started attending it in 2021. But house churches in general are pretty small. And when, when you have, you know, a couple of people leave and a couple of people come in, it can really change the dynamic. And so some of the people that were in the house church left at the beginning of the year to start a church plant. And mm. we've 
lost other people who never came back after the pandemic and people who moved Mm -hmm. away to do missions overseas. So the dynamic of the church is completely different, right? Than how it was in 2019. And our pastor has been pretty exhorting us from the pulpit to get involved and do things. And I have a pretty aggressive travel schedule. And so that's not always been possible for me um, to do that. But I Mm -hmm. did plan tonight with one of the other, one of my friends at church to do an event that we're calling generosity, consumerism, and Jesus. And I, in general, like having really meaty discussions, you know, as you can imagine on this podcast, I was able to have a lot of really, um, Christian conversations where there's not really a right answer. I was able to have that pretty much on a weekly basis, but that's something that I would really love for a lot more Christians to be able to have. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess I'm feeling optimistic about this, Carmen, because I feel like it's going to be something that um, we can hopefully have a really great conversation where we speak frankly about our faith and scripture and our own lives. Um, But there's not going to be this sense of weird pressure to stick the landing because pretty much... Mm -hmm. My, my thought is if that you live in the United States, <laughs> you are living in sin with regards to the Bible's teachings on mm-hmm. possessions and money and generosity. And that there's some, mm-hmm. you know, just course correcting, significant course correcting that we have to do. We're not going to fix it tonight and I'm not interested in being legalistic, yeah. but I am interested as we are like in this be- in between space between Thanksgiving and Christmas to be able to speak a little bit more frankly about some of this type of yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, I'm excited. So anyway, <laughs> we'll see how it goes, but I'm pretty sure that's going to be my precious moment. And nice. I am also on Twitter, although I just took five days off and I was like, I didn't need to come back here. Oh wait, I do I have to tell Carmen we're going to have the show. <laughs> so people can find me at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. Everyone also is welcome to email me at emily at christianitytoday.com. I don't know how many listeners we're going to have who wanted to stay in touch now that this show is officially over, but I did wanted to put that out there for people who were interested in keeping the conversation alive. So as we wrap quick to listen for the last time, I just want to say thank you to a number of people, starting with Richard Clark, my former boss, who was tasked with starting podcast at Christianity Today, and let me host the first one that we ever released. This has been a tremendous honor, and I can't imagine where I would be today without the show. I'm just so grateful, so grateful to Richard for taking a chance on me and letting me host this. To my co-host, Ted Olson, who couldn't join us today, I'm thankful for the season that we, two of the department's original podcast nerds, had working on this podcast project together. I'm thankful to Faith Ndovu, Yvonne Sue, and Bunia Shola for transcribing the show and making a version of it available to people who were unable to listen. I'm thankful to Matt Lander for constantly trying to improve his craft, accommodating last minute requests, and being an important sounding board and friend over the years. So much gratitude to all our incredible guests, many of whom joined the show with little time to repair and who still managed to say numerous informational, eloquent, and provocative things. You all are the ones who made the podcast worth tuning into week after week, and you played an invaluable role in shaping and soothing my faith. Finally, thank you so much to all of our listeners who joined us once a week, anywhere between 2016 and 2021. Thank you for investing in thoughtful, Christian journalism about the craziness happening in our world. 
I'm so grateful to have been a recipient of such kind words about the show and to have had the chance to learn from so many of you. This podcast is a production of Christianity Today. It is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. Transcription is done by Faith and Dovu. And you can find this wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you in part by Ministry Pivot with Russell St. Bernard. This podcast features important conversations with industry leaders such as Nona Jones, Bishop Walter Scott Thomas, Reverend Dr. Nicole Martin, and so many more. Visit ministrypivot.com or on all streaming platforms.